Today, on The Art Dealer Show, we will hear returning guest Alex Salazar say, After you went through that, you weren't really selling, you were really educating, and if you taught them really well, you didn't have to ask for the sell. If that wasn't enough information to convince you that you should buy something, then you felt. So you have to learn how to teach. Hello and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have the second part of my conversation with art dealer and gallerist Alex Salazar, who's based in San Diego, California. Now, if you haven't heard the first part of my conversation with Alex, you don't need to go running off and listening to it before listening to this one. You know, it's a fantastic one, and you definitely should do it, but this one will stand on its own as well. And the reason for that is, it's a whole new host of topics that we get into in the second half of our conversation. And they all should be absolutely fascinating for any of us who are in the business of selling art. Now, this is the part where I usually go and I list them one after the other. I say, we will talk about how to hang your gallery just the perfect way, or how to advertise to get a great art dealer, whatever it is. But I'm not going to do that, let's whet your appetite and stick the hook in a little bit deeper thing. And the reason for that is, even though we got to a bunch of different little things along the way, there really was just one big overarching topic that was more important than any of them separately. And that was this. It was really came down to becoming the better art dealer before worrying about making the better art selling business. And that's a big one and well worth sticking around for. But before we get there, I have a couple other little things on my mind, actually not so little, that I like to run by you. So maybe if you can give me a minute, we can drop on over to the old art dealer bar so I can share some of those with you. Are we settled in? Do we have ourselves something nice to drink? Are we comfortable? Excellent. I don't know if you know this, but most of the things I talk about here, they're based on real things that take place in my real career as an art dealer in the time since the last time we got together, which I know in this particular case has been a long time. What has taken place in this case was I got a phone call from a gallery that I've worked with for many years. They uh, sell the works by a artist who I represent, and they've been doing it with some great success. Uh, but what they've never been able to do for whatever reason, and they're rather frustrated about this, I believe, is they've been never been able to crack into the big figures of this artist. And this artist can get pretty high up there. Anyway, they called up to tell me that they had a collector who had fallen in love with the most expensive painting by this one artist that they have in their gallery right now. And even though they felt they had a great presentation and they knew he was very excited and they had already cleared that he could truly afford to buy this painting, they couldn't get past his need for some kind of proof of the value of the painting itself. Now, I'm not talking about an explanation of why the artist's work is great or why the artist is very important or why his works are valuable. Quite frankly, they it wasn't even the issue of whether other works by this artist had sold for a lot of money. We had actually provided them more candidly than most people who represent artists ever would do, provided him with a list of the last six months of original paintings that had sold by him. And yet this didn't do the job. He still needed something, something that 
made this make sense as a prudent thing to do. And that's where I came in. I, I, I volunteered. I said, well, maybe he just needs a second voice. Maybe just another professional art dealer who knew something about the artist to tell the story one more time and to really, with great confidence, explain that this is something that takes place every day. And there are many collectors who believe strongly in this artist and, blah, blah, you know, you get the idea. Anyway, that didn't work. I, I'm not going to say I bombed, but I didn't do the job. And it started to make me think a lot about this one thing that keeps on coming up over and over and over again and will for the rest of my career as an art dealer it will always come up that question of what makes this worth it now a lot of the times you can get past it because ultimately the person you're talking to the reason they're listening is because they genuinely like the art and they really they want you to convince them that it is worth it because they just want to be able to have it and take home because they love it. They didn't. They wouldn't be listening to you in the first place. But some people, some people, that's just not enough. And I've always wanted to find a really good answer for that. And I think I've kind of done my best to get around it. I don't know if I've ever really learned it. So in this particular case, instead of me just theorizing what it takes to do this, which I can do, I have a lot of thoughts about it, I thought I'll call up a buddy in the business. Now, he's somebody, if you go back to the early days of this show, you know. Uh, I thought I'll call up Jeff Jaffe. And this isn't something from the past. I actually like to do it right here, right now. Um, I, I, hey, can you bring me the, the bar phone? Can we just, now, I don't know if you realize this, but the art dealer bar, it's in the 1950s, back when you could hang out at a bar and ask for the phone and the barkeep would put it up on the bar. Hello, Pop International Galleries. May I help you? Jeff, it's Danny. How you doing? Dano! How's it going, man? <laughs> hey, I got a quick question for you while I'm hanging out here uh, on the podcast. Go for it. All right. So here's the situation. I got a phone call earlier this week from a gallery that I sell to. Yeah. They're finally going to pop a big painting. It's like a big $55,000 job. And they're struggling because they got a collector in. Uh, and, and the guy's in love with the piece. His wife really wants the piece, but he's trying to rationalize it. And he's doing one of those deals where he's already uh, called up a friend who works over at the MoMA, who, of uh. course, never heard of the artist I represent, <laughs> which has got him spooked. And, and, and he's looking for a justification to buy the piece. So... I volunteered to the gallery. I said, look, wh why don't you put him on the phone with me? I'll, you know, let him call me up. And, and I did this whole long, big, you know, spiel, right? I mean, I told him the whole fucking story about who the artist is. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of it, he was like, you know, thank me for your uh, half an hour performance. But I'm still trying to measure, you know, if the rest of the world thinks the artist is worth this amount of money. So, it, you, look, if, you know, this, this is a question that I deal with on a fairly regular basis, I have to tell you. Handling of this issue is something that we talk about at the gallery probably daily. And we have some pretty good strategies, actually, about how to, how to handle it. Okay, I'm all ears. <laughs> okay, I'm sort of happy to get you. Because no, really, it. I was stymied. You know, look, I've been in the business for almost as long as you have. And, of course, I don't get to practice it every day like you do. I've told them every reason in the world why this artist should be taken very seriously, but they say, well, you know, I'm looking for some sort of Christie's number. I got nothing. You know, he's he's not Picasso. 
you know, sometimes it's you have to read, you have to read the client. You have to sort of is truly listening to what that collector is saying. If you really and truly listen, then I think that's really half the battle. Um, most buyers, and especially those who are not all that experienced with buying, really need to be heard. They need to have their their misgivings heard and understood and sometimes explained away. Um, they need to sort of feel secure and and sort of um, cocooned, if you will, by the person from whom they're buying uh, a significant piece of art. Or, or My general approach to this has always been based on trying to help them understand that buying a piece of art depends on a number of things, but it also might depend on who you're buying it from. Mm-hmm. What what kind of reputation does the dealer have? Uh, how long has this dealer been in business? How long have they represented this artist? What kind of a collector base already exists for this artist? We're going right now through a little bit of this with a phenomenal artist that we represent here. And one of the things, while I'm convinced that this is a museum-bound guy, one of the things that is truly um, a great test and testament to the value of these prices as they're going up, and they're starting to hit that, that price point, actually, is to see which collections they're in, who's bought from us, which celebrity collection is he in, which corporate collection is this painting, uh, is a painting by this artist in, and thereby you're able to sort of draw a very clear, honest, transparent, because that's really in the end what we have to be is completely transparent, how this artist may be moving up in the world and, and why 50 grand is an appropriate amount of money to spend on a particular painting at a given time. In the end, spending 50 grand in a gallery with a, uh, with a dealer is a testament to the relationship that you have with that gallery. And, and yeah, it would be lovely if everybody walked into my gallery every day and said, you know, how much is it? It's 50 grand. Okay, I'll take it. Once in a while, maybe we, we get a coconut like that. It hits us on the head. But the reality is defining a relationship between the gallery, the dealer, and the collector. And once that is, once that is in place, then I think justifying a price to someone is, a, is just the next and final step. It's overcoming objections. This is just another classic sales objection. You hit a few really interesting things in there, though. You know, one of them is... <laughs> And I kept on thinking about this in this particular case, too. And I always think about this when I get these kind of calls. I I, want to say you might not have done the job you needed to do in the beginning. I uh, 100% agree with you. And what's going on right now is you're trying to come up with a way to make up that. And that's why very hard. Because right. you, you, I think you might have nailed it when you said this is an issue of does this person really have the faith that this is the place where people buy $50,000 paintings or buy $50 million paintings? Do they buy Correct. it from this guy? And is this guy a stand-up guy for when that happens? And Correct. if you didn't establish that, then they don't have the language to say that's the problem because they don't do this every day. So they Absolutely. come up with other things like prove. Now you got to go find something on the outside to prove to me why this works, because I haven't learned it on the inside or I don't believe it here on the inside. Absolutely. I, I completely and 100 percent agree with you is to establish a relationship immediately that develops a comfort level and a comfort zone in which someone can operate, both the gallerist and the, the collector. And mm-hmm. one, one of our, our most 
poignant things that we talk about here at, at, at Pop International is transparency. How, how do you, yeah, this is, you know, this is how we do it. This is how we've been doing it. Uh, this is who this artist is. He has history. He has, you know, as much information that I can give you. And if I don't have all the information that you're looking for, I say to them, you know what, that's a great question. I don't necessarily have the answer for. Let me do a little digging. But the, the, and then going ahead and trying to do a little bit more research so that I can help somebody feel more comfortable. But the real, real concern is this initial comfort zone. It's in the beginning when somebody is in that, you're in that space and it's that, that delicate moment of where this person is thinking about dropping X amount of bucks on a piece of art where you as a, as a, an art dealer or an, or a, an art consultant or whatever you want to call it, gallerist, has the capacity to sort of almost preempt every question and every objection that's going to come down the line, you know, and, and and being prepared for that in the beginning will serve you well at the end. That's the moral of the story. I think so. The being prepared in the beginning, serving you in the end. Yeah, and you know, one of the things we also talk about on an ongoing basis is you don't have to spill everything in the beginning. Very important is to be able to, uh, as objections may come up, whether they're pricing or, or historical or relevant to the art market or whatever, mm. that you have all these answers in your back pocket to some degree because you're preempting all of these objections to begin with. And price is just another objection. Yeah, you know, I want to share something with you. I, f I found at the very end of this when I was feeling like I was struggling to tread water because I was coming in late in the game yeah. as often as the case. It yeah. was like, it was worse than being the closing director. It's being the closing director from next door. Yeah. And uh, um, and, I, and I said to the guy, I asked him, I go, look, I, I'm curious. I'm about to ask you a really jerky question. I actually asked permission if I can ask a jerky question. And I said, are you hoping that I'm going to tell you something that's going to get you out of being able, you know, buying a $55,000 something? Or are you hoping I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you feel good about buying a $55,000 something? And I, I wound up loving my own question and really wishing I asked it in the beginning. Right. Because in the beginning, if you get that answer, you'll know how to proceed either way. Obviously, if you get, mm -hmm. if you get the latter where you know you want to feel good about spending that money, then it's just a, it's just a walk in the park, really. But I just want to say one more thing that just occurred to me. Anybody who's, mm -hmm. yeah, go. anyone who's sort of having this financial sort of struggle in their head, should they spend this money or not on this painting? You know what? They actually have the money to do it. And, and therein is the rub. Once we know they're qualified to spend that kind of money, I always tell people, Buy art that you love and that you can afford. Don't don't buy art that you can't afford. No one should buy anything that they can't afford. Buy art that you love and make sure that you can afford it, or vice versa. It doesn't mm. really matter. But if somebody's sort of having this, it's not a it's not a, a, a an ethical or a moral battle. It's it's a fiscal battle in their head. Should I spend this money on this piece of art? Well. Our struggle is to sort of get him to come around and say, yeah, of course I'm going to spend this money because we know already that he actually has that money to spend. And when you know that the person has the money to spend, the battle is actually a relatively easy one. Wow, that's really powerful, actually. Yeah. 
It is, because then it's just a matter of, of transparency and information and compassion. All right, Jeff. I want to thank you very much. Appreciate you taking time for the call. Good to hear from you, and uh, anytime. Hey, that was pretty good. Uh, I think I'm going to start doing a lot more of this in the future. It uh, takes a little bit of stress off of me to have to always do the talking around here. Uh, By the way, if you like the idea of me calling up other professionals in the business... Uh, right here at the Art Dealer Bar and having a conversation with them, drop me an email. I like to know. It's something new that we're obviously trying and want to see if you like it. But in the meantime, let's listen to me talk about some other stuff. Do you have an important art show coming up at your gallery? Do you have a new release from the artist you represent? Do you have, I don't know what, But something you want to get the word out about in our business to the public, don't try to do it for yourself. That is not what you do. You are an art dealer. There are other professionals who do this for a living, and one in particular does it specifically for people like you and me in the art business. That's Allison Zucker Perlman, the owner of Relevant Communications that can be found at relevantcommunications.net. Allison and her team of PR specialists within the art business have been doing this for years and years and years and years. Go check them out at relevantcommunications.net and find out what they could be doing for you. If you're listening to this podcast, it means you're interested about what's going on in the business of selling art. And we got a lot to say in this podcast, but quite frankly, there's some folks that have been doing it for about 20 years longer than we have, and they do it in print form. Crazy print form. It's the folks over at Art World News. Art World News has been covering the industry of art sales and framing for 21 years now. If you want to be in touch with what's happening in our industry, pick up an issue. If you want to be sharing something about your business and looking for the perfect place to advertise, advertise in the next issue. Art World News. If you've been paying any attention about what's been going on in our business over the past couple of years, you've probably realized that the industry is becoming all about the fairs, the art fairs. That's why I'm so proud of the fact that the folks over at Redwood Media Group are a sponsor of this very podcast. Redwood Media Group, that can be found at redwoodmg.com, are the host of fairs that happen throughout the entirety of the United States. Most recently, I just came back from Santa Fe. Now that's over. You can't do that one. But coming up soon, San Diego and San Diego, California. Hey, the home of the guest of this very episode. And then after that, the big one, New York City. No, they've slid one in right before that, Las Vegas. And then the one in New York City. They do them everywhere. Find out where the next show is and how you can participate in it as an exhibitor or an attendee or God knows what over at RedwoodMG.com. So as I noted before, this is part two of our conversation with art dealer and gallery owner Alex Salazar. And I highly recommend you take a listen to part one. But as I noted before also, it's not mandatory because this part, it stands on its own two feet perfectly well. But let me bring you up to speed just a little bit 
Last time we talked with Alex, we were really getting deep into how he has just gone through over the past year the process of closing down seven gallery locations and boiling it down to this one small but prestigious location that he has recently moved to. He's completely transformed his business. And if you really listen carefully, what he was explaining the whole way through is what has saved his business, what has made it possible to bring it down to this one gallery, is understanding that the kernel, the thing that's at the core of what he has always done and really should be for all of us, comes down to understanding relationships, real relationships. I'll give you a great example of that that came up during the conversation you're about to listen to. And for me, I think really sums it up perfectly. He was explaining this. He was talking about relationships being important and reconnecting with the folks who he's done business with over the years. And I had asked him, I said, do you think that really defines what it is to be a success for Alex Salazar in the art business? And he responded to me and he said, Danny, I I think that's what defines being a successful human being. Alex has walked down a very interesting road. And a lot of that you'll get to hear when you listen back to the first episode, if you hadn't heard it before. He came into the industry like a lot of us at the ground level. He learned how to be an art dealer with no other sales experience before in his life. He built up to the point where he became a bit of a superstar of an art dealer. And once he got to that point, opened up his first gallery and then a second, his third and fourth, and he got to those seven galleries. But before that, Alex got a solid gold education, including in the fine arts, but not limited to it. His education is an Ivy League education. It has two masters and before that, a very impressive undergrad. And where we picked up in part two of this conversation is where Alex was explaining where he was left after getting his multiple degrees, how that set him down the path of becoming a very impressive art dealer. So I went to uh, London for a year and I studied uh, contemporary art, which to me was a shit show because I didn't get it. I was really into the the Baroque and, and Renaissance. And this is before Boston. This is before Harvard. Yes, yeah. So before I before I continued into before I specifically went into religion and art. But after your undergrad in after at Colorado College, after my undergrad, I, I went to Europe. Okay. For two years and tried to really see the extremes. And I I literally did one year in London contemporary art, and then went and studied Renaissance and Baroque and Bernini in Florence. Huge polarities. And then I was able to pick. And, and when I opened up White Box for the contemporary mm-hmm. aspect, it was because I knew that I needed to have that contemporary aspect to be taken seriously, that if I was specifically selling uh, religious or, you know, impressionism, that I would be an antiques dealer. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So I had to have both brands working for me. And that's why I opened up White Box Contemporary so that I can do, like I said, the work that wasn't so sellable but was more marketable as opposed to Alexander Salazar Fine Art where I would do more risk and and really sell you what you needed to buy and find what you needed to get. And, and that service is what helped me succeed is that I became a private art consultant to families that needed certain pieces that would call me from from auction houses and say hey but this we is want to way down this. the road right yeah, yeah yeah this is after that after that experience mm-hmm. i was able to sort of pick and choose uh 
who I wanted to work with. And even today, you know, I don't open my doors and sometimes I ask 20 questions before I can get to the root of whether I want to talk to you. And it's not because I want to be a jerk or anything. It's just that there's always an artist that wants your attention. There's always a collector that wants to name drop about who they know. And, and it's just me. I don't, have, I don't have anybody else answering my phone calls. So every single call goes to my phone. So I, is this by I necessity or is this down. by design now? Uh, right I, now by necessity. Right now by necessity. Mainly because because of my downsizing is still going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you don't downsize in one year. You downsize in three years. And the challenge of getting people to my new address or knowing that I didn't go out of business because until you update your Yelp and your Google and your all these other social media SEOs, people can just think you went out of business. So now I'm having to rebrand my location by putting ads in the paper again, by, by doing more pop-ups here and there and letting people know that I still exist. The twist, though, is that I'm painting again. And in doing that, I'm now regaining the client base that I used to have when I was in grad school in Boston, where I was a full-time artist, where I was exhibiting, where I was selling that client base, which is probably about 50 people, uh-huh. um, are coming back to me and buying art. So it's... You wow, know, and that's a big jump. I mean, huge. you haven't been talking to those people yeah. probably in now how but many they, years? 20 years? Right, 20 mean, years. Yeah. And, but they have been following me and, and have every now and then sent me a message, hey, that's great that you're doing all this with other artists, but what about you? When are you going to paint again? Because we bought this painting from you and we want to know where this is going. And, you know, and I was, you know, about 20 years ago for me to sell a painting for two grand was huge, massive, you know, for me, you know, it's just massive. So I went into the art business to learn how to sell my own art and realize that I was better off selling other people's art than my own work. Because Isn't that what brought you to the first gallery you yeah, worked at? That was the very, the, I took a job in, in art sales just to learn how to sell art. This because in they had Boston? A, in Boston at, at Wentworth Galleries. Oh, we started with Wentworth. I started right with Wentworth get-go. in Boston, okay. and they had a, a great training program. I mean, they had videos. They had, you know, they had how to overcome objections. It was uh-huh. purely. It's very weird to me because I didn't know that that's the way it was. I didn't know that that's art. That that was art sales. That's all I knew. Martin Lawrence print days. You know, Thomas McKnight and sure. Kondakova and all that. It's when uh, it's when Wentworth and uh, Martin Lawrence were friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, different owners different at that owners. time. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're talking about the difference of chalk and vermilion yeah. getting involved. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So, so that's so I went from that. So then I stopped. Were painting. you surprised to find out that it was so nuts and bolts like that? Yeah. Do you still think yeah. it's that nuts and bolts? No, because um, I I remember. I remember realizing that you can't train that. That you can teach it, but you can't train it. Uh-huh. In other words, you can teach it and hope that it works, but to train it means to actually work. <laughs> and and I, you know, they had boards, they had you know all sorts of all sorts of training materials, and and there's even books about you know how to sell art, and and I read them, and it's sort of funny to me. Some of them are, are very sort of. Um, the secrets of the trade. Uh, the reality is that it, those sales secrets apply to any type of sales. 
You're know. talking about books that they shared you about how with you at, Mar- at, at Wentworth or things anyway, you read? No, like? There's just some, some that are published. I'm just curious with, with the fancy education that you came into with it. Uh, very theoretical. I thought and, it was a joke. Very sacrosanct. You thought it was a joke? Yeah. I thought it was funny. The videos, watching videos of, hi, how are you? Let's teach you how to sell art was like, whoa. Did it feel a little dirty? It, yeah. It just didn't feel natural. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't feel natural. Well, what did you think you would wind up doing, though, before you saw well, those that's videos? Well, that's why I told them that I didn't want to sell art. I wanted to be more of a curator, and I wanted to teach people. I wanted to lecture because that's what I was good at. I was I was good at talking to groups of people. So whenever they had an exhibit, I would be more of the spokesperson of the body of the work and talking about the work. I worked with Peter Max. I worked with Nikita, talking about their historical background, their historical significance. To me, after you went through that, you weren't really selling. You were really educating. And if you taught them really well, you didn't have to ask for the sell. If that wasn't enough information to convince you that you should buy something then you failed. So you have to learn how to, how to teach. That's always been my philosophy. Yeah. I just don't, and that's always, that was very much my approach. I don't know if it always worked out perfectly, though. I it never just, does. Nothing yeah. ever does. It's, it all de- you have to adjust your sales technique or whatever based on the client and who they are and, and wh- where they're from. And Lord knows when I moved out here, I missed my New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here you'd have a couple come in eating ice cream and they'd say, well, call me in six months and if it's still here, I'll consider it. I was, just, I was scared as hell because if I didn't sell something in six months, I'd be out, you know. And in New York, don't like it, like it. Husband hates it, wife uh-huh. hates it. Very straightforward. We love it. We don't want to pay that much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, straight to the negotiation tables. But uh, it was easier. And it was, it was, was an efficiency to New Yorkers that you just don't have anywhere else in yeah. the country. And it, I, I enjoyed that more so. Because New Yorkers get it. <laughs> East Coast get it. Uh, whereas West Coast is a little bit more relaxed. When uh, and you kind of got to be their friend a little bit more out here. You have to just be patient. Mm-hmm. And frankly, look at me. I'm in shorts and flip-flops now. <laughs> whereas yeah. I was used to suiting up, you know. And now, you know, you want to sort of, you want to mirror your client. And if your clients sense that you are working, then they sort of don't want to play. But if they sense that you're sort of also enjoying yourself, then they'll play with you. That's an interesting take. Yeah. I always had a, and I'm not sold on it either way. Mm-hmm. I used to have a, um, a counter philosophy mm-hmm. of I'm asking them to take what I'm showing as being very valuable and very serious. And that if I don't, if I'm not presenting myself in that way, how can they take what's coming out of my mouth right. as being equally serious? I think you have an advantage that you've established such a solid clientele at this point where and I had to and I had to go back to that. Uh-huh. I had to when I when I expanded so fast and so heavily, I didn't have time to pick up the phone to call the people that have given me money before. So for a while, you know, I I just was so busy that I guess some of them felt just ignored. I would say or just unappreciated. Are you talking about now during Clients. this? Switch? No, this was during no, this was during the whole seven gallery fiasco that I was going right. through. But that's so now I'm picking up the phone and I'm calling them and they're like, Oh my god, we haven't heard from you in so long. What a coincidence. We're looking for a painting. You uh-huh. know, whether they're being honest or not, they will support me, but they want to be they want to be called. They wanna be, you know, they wanna feel special. 
And uh, I, for a while, I wasn't able to make any of them feel special by, because I used to get invited to bar mitzvahs, to weddings, to you know uh, christenings. I used to get invited to. I was part of their family type of thing. I mean, I've seen couples from when they met, dating, married. Now they have kids. Now the kids are in high school. You know, that's how close I've become to them. That um, when you stop that communication, you're sort of not necessarily outgrew them, but you're just too busy, and then you lose them. And, and I've switched to where I only focus on people that have already given me money. And I say that very concretely. If they've given me money, they've, already, they've trusted me enough to have already given me money once. So all I have to do is make sure that they find another painting that they want. And it's my job to find it for them because if they're too busy to look, then it's my job to be their eyes and ears. And even... Is it a weird transition? Because sometimes I've had this experience where it becomes very personal and I want to get back to that in a minute, too, and talk about how you develop that relationship, that at some point, it, it's been personal for so long that then to call them up one day and say, hey, I have this painting, and like, you well, can't cover the fact that, that you're yeah. in salesman mode. Yeah. Why well, I, I don't start it off like that. I just sort of call them up, and I actually apologize to a lot of people and say, hey, I'm sorry I haven't been able to call you in a long time, but uh, I did get something in, and I did think of you, so I just want to talk to you. Come visit the gallery. Let's go have lunch. And, and then you just wait to see if they respond yeah, and if yeah. they don't, and, let it and be. And they do, and they do, mm-hmm. and they do. And they want to come in and even if they don't buy anything, to see them again is good because I am 100% referral. And people will call me and say, I was in so-and-so's house. They said, you how great you are. They love you. Can you help us? Mm-hmm. You know. Let's go back to those personal relationships. I mean, that, that doesn't just happen. It's a lot that, of work, but, but it's... Well, and it starts, I assume, from the word hello. Yeah. I've, I've never been afraid to talk to anybody. I, I, funny joke. So you're going to laugh at this. Oh, you're going to laugh at this. Okay. So this weekend, uh, I was at the, in, at the Palazzo in Vegas and saw somebody that looked quite familiar, and I'm pretty sure it was him. Ronnie Wood. It was the music awards. I don't know if he was in town. But I said, aren't you Tom Petty? <laughs> no. <laughs> could not, I could just, the name just came out wrong. <laughs> That's it just wonderful. came out wrong. That's wonderful. And he just laughed. <laughs> he just laughed. He just sort of laughed and shook his head. And then I'm like, And it, and it was I, Ronnie. Yes. And like, okay. I, so I Googled him and showed my friend. I'm like, that was him. He's like, yeah, that was him. I'm like, God. Damn it! I was like, how did I, how did I get that wrong? It was just the first thing that came out. <laughs> that is the best. <laughs> it says, I, I gotta state it. it. Says, you know, Alex is saying that because Ronnie Wood is my former client yeah. as an artist. <laughs> I'm like, God damn it! But that goes into sort of knowing your clients, and knowing where they're at, what they're doing, and it's easy nowadays to sort of be a little detective. You know, with Facebook to find out whether they have grandkids, whether they moved, you know, it's easier to keep track on them. Whereas before, you know, unless you were in communication with them or gone invitations, I'm eager to know what was going on. But I can't do everything. You know, it's hard for me to be, you know, on social media, on the phone, in the gallery, making delivery. It's it's easy, easy burnout direction for me. And what I've learned is just to take time off. And there's a constant battle. Because yeah. there are times where I say to myself, you've got to just focus on this one thing. This week is strictly about following up with that guy, getting that painting in front of him, and carrying it through to its end. Right. That you can't, 
finish anything if you're going to talk to right. 100 people. Right. And then after you're done with that, that you, me, I'm talking about me, I then have a panic attack about how I haven't talked to two dozen other people who I should have been talking to. Mm -hmm. And then I spend the entire next week doing nothing but calling everybody and asking how the kids are. Right. And then I go back again to the other thing. Yeah. See, and what I do is I text. Really? I text a lot. Yeah, I have I have most of them on my phone. And uh -huh. I'll text them, uh, hey, how are you? Just, you know, uh, this gala where I'm donating 30 paintings to has been a great way to reconnect with people and basically invite them to something that's not an art show. Because that's the thing is that every time I'd call people and say, hey, I'm having an art opening, I wanted to invite you. Every freaking month there was an art opening. You know, sometimes there were three and four a month. But it became sort of... Sort of like, he's calling to invite me for another show. That's all he's calling me for, is to invite me for another show. Uh -huh. So no matter how unique it is, yeah. it's the same. So now I don't have any shows, so I invite them to other people's events, which shows that I don't have a self-interest in it. That I'm literally calling them to invite them to something that I thought they would be interested in that has nothing to do with selling them art. And it's, again, mm -hmm. regaining that confidence of, um, of relationship. Mm -hmm. rebuilding their relationship. Because, you know, there are people like, oh, you only call me when you need something. Or you only call me when you need a ride. Or, you know, it's a relationship's a relationship. Call it what you will. Whether it's um, mother-father or whether it's dealer-client. It's, you have to work on it. Is that the key to art dealing or is that the key to being an art dealer, Alex Salazar? It's, it's the key to being a human being. <laughs> Having good relationships. But for yeah. me, I've I've seen the faces and I've seen the the positive reactions when I do call people. And and I've seen the sales. Ultimately, you know, the phone starts ringing and and it keeps me busy. <laughs> and I'm going and I'm spending more time taking vacations, uh, time off, but I'm always working. Even when I'm on a cruise ship, I'm panning out business cards and, you know, it's, granted, it's funny that... I've always I, wanted to be that person and I've tried... Well, the cruise ship I, is I, funny because everybody asks me for my opinion on the auctions on the cruise ship. How much do you think that's worth? Blah, blah. And I'll say, here's my card. Uh -huh. Give me a call when you're off the boat. <laughs> if you, and, I, and I don't take away from, from the auction house. I always say, if you love it, buy it. That's all that matters. Uh -huh. Love it, buy it. You know, I'm not there to... I'm, there, I'm on vacation. You know, I'm not there to, to give them my professional opinion, <laughs> you know, to... And I was going to tell you an interesting thing that's happening uh, going back to uh, joining forces amongst gallery owners is that there are a lot of gallery owners that are artists as well. Younger, the younger gallery owners. Mm -hmm. And uh, I pitched the idea to do a show of the gallery owner's art for charity. Collectively? Collectively, to do mm -hmm. a group show. And? So that all of those galleries can send their client base or market it to another gallery. And it's going to happen in August in North Park. Oh, you're pulling it off. Yeah. Another gallery is putting it together. Um, I'm participating in it. And I'm just sort of advising on what they should do because it's, I think it's pretty cool to see the other side. Because what I tell people is I'm not just, I, I held off by telling people about my art background, mainly to not compete or not conflict. Because I do have people that want to buy my art. Or mm -hmm. some people walk in here and think I did every single painting in here, which is silly. And I joke about that. You know, I'm like, of course I made every painting in here. <laughs> you know, tells me a little bit about their their intelligence, but it also tells me how um, the range of people coming in. So I, I laugh, I can giggle about it, and then it sort of breaks the ice when I say, yes, no, I didn't do all of these paintings. So they're like, ah, oh, you got me. 
and then we can talk about my art or the art on the walls and and like the signs on the walls right now talk about a charity that I'm working on and um so I'm slowly transitioning I'm slowly putting myself on the gallery walls and mainly to be able to offer something to everybody no matter what somebody I mean I have paintings that are 4 or 5 6000 bucks that somebody offers me 800 bucks and that's all they can afford and they want this painting I'll take it it's my painting I can do whatever the hell I want with it but I know that there are a lot of young people that just need that one purchase to sort of start, you know, they get the bug. Or uh-huh. they buy yeah, more. exact words. Yeah. yeah, and it's that one purchase can make a huge difference for that person. And if they keep feeling that they can't afford it, then they're just going to give up. Hey, I'm sorry to interrupt our conversation with Alex. And in just a second, I'm going to put you right back in it. But in the meanwhile, I want to point something out. You have gone way past the halfway mark of this episode, which means one of two things. Either one, you really like the show. You like it a lot. Or two, you fell asleep during the show, and this is just playing on as you sleep. If it is the prior, I want to ask a little favor of you that maybe you can help support the show. Now, I'm not going to ask for any money, so don't worry about that. But if you haven't subscribed, subscribe. If you haven't had a chance yet to go to iTunes and give a rating of the show, please do that. I recommend five stars. It's what makes most people happy. And if you're there, you might as well leave a comment too. But the biggest thing you can be doing is passing the word along. You got another friend in the business? Tell them that you love the show and that they should be listening to the show too. Now back to me talking with Alan. You know what I find really interesting about this conversation? What's that? All right. I've done a few dozen interviews at this point, right, for the show. I think every single one of them, at some point, someone wants to talk about the state of our dealing, the state of, you know, the industry in the current day society and where it is and how much of a future it has. Is it as good as it was? All of those kind of things. And you seem to be completely unconcerned about that yeah you're kind of running your own deal and that's it yeah like i said i i really tried to do that whole group networking thing of other gallery owners and i've sort of just tabled that idea um yeah mainly, but that's still local to you it is you're not worried about the millennials buy artwork you're not expressing that you're worried about baby boomers aren't buying anymore you're yeah. you know it's just You've got your customers and you've got your marketplace. Yeah, I have, and I have a good base. And that's the thing is that those are the ones that are keeping me in business. You know, there's there's clients that recently bought art from me that I haven't seen in 10 years and will just buy over the phone from me. Does it, And it never worries you about filling the pipeline? No, not really. Okay. Yeah. It's To me, it's... Uh, it's knowing that everything I ship out is going to be appreciated and not going to be resold. That's always been my thing. It's like, I hope you're not buying this and reselling it somewhere because then it becomes like sneaky and whatnot. So I am very upfront with people whenever I give them deals. You know, Why does that bother you? Um, mainly because it is a personal purchase and and I don't work with a lot of other dealers um, primarily because it's, 
they add money to every purchase, and then by the time it tries to get to the clients, it's overvalued, overpriced, and then it doesn't get sold. And we're talking about like Warhols and whatnot, blue chip. So it's when you but start does it getting bother you, someone's paying an unnecessary market markup, or that yeah, it bothers the, me the, yeah. the art's being driven up too high, yeah. or yeah, it bothers it bothers me when there's too many hands in the pot. Uh huh. You know, because I feel that the client, the collector, is getting, you know, the short end of the stick. Whereas the price was five, you know, the price was ten grand, and by the time it gets to the client, it's thirty. <laughs> you know. And there is a lot of dishonesty. And for me, I'm full disclosure. I've been in front of people and I've and I've told them whenever they've gotten better deals, I'll tell them specifically, write this check amount for me and write this check amount for the artist so that you see how much the artist is getting and how much I'm getting. And that's something that, that I started doing just so that they know what I'm making. Oh, did you start, do you do that every time? No, not every time. Whenever it's a significant discount. Whenever I give a, a, a client a significant discount, mm -hmm. I tell them to write two checks. One to the artist for the amount so that they see how much the artist is getting. Because they always think I'm always going to get 50-50. They're like, well, you're still going to make half. You're still going to make half. So you want to show them I want specifically them that comes out of the gallery and this, yeah, you are not... I'm not making 50% I'm not, I'm not markup here. I'm not making 50%. I'm making 5%, 10%. But I'm but are you trying to, to show them you're taking care of the artist or are you trying to show them that it's Both. you that's getting hurt in this process? I'm, trying to, I'm showing them that I'm still taking care of the artist and taking care of them. And that, to me, uh -huh. making sure that they got the piece was more important than me making Keystone. Keystone is thrown around a lot. You still have to make you have to make Keystone, or else you're going to go out of business. You don't. <laughs> I, I completely disagree. I'm with you, by the yeah. way, when I say disagree. Yeah. I I think you will stay in business as long as you are making a profit. Yeah. Keystone really isn't relevant to yeah. anything. You know. Yes, if every piece of artwork in your gallery is a hundred dollars. You might very well need to have Keystone across the board, but if sometimes it's a hundred thousand, you know, twenty five thousand dollars is twenty five thousand right. dollars. It doesn't have to be fifty. Exactly, exactly. But it's been interesting, and usually it's with those businessmen that you know are really trying to get you down, get you down, get you down. And I tell them, hey, I have to pay my bills, and I've I've gotten to the point where I tell people. I can't afford to pay for you to have art. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, when it gets to the point that's just so ridiculous, I'm like, you're asking me to pay $1,000 so that you can walk home with a painting. I can't do that. You know, and, and being so honest and blunt. This is the first time I've ever heard this. I also like it because, you know, the thing we always talk about when if you can't afford to give a discount is that you are now giving bad training to the client. That is, you're teaching them that, Every time they come back in this gallery, they should get exactly that percentage and, and completely disregard what the cost of that is. Mm -hmm. This way, you're actually putting a little bit of pain in it for them, too. Yeah. That, you know, they're feeling the strain of it. Yep. You're showing them that you're sacrificing and that you're, you're going out of your way to do something good for them. Do you, so what do you find when you do that? Do you ever find them pulling back or less likely to do it the second time they come to buy another piece um, of artwork? I tell, usually I tell them the last time was a gift. Mm -hmm. and, and usually I tell them this is probably the only time this will ever happen. You know, and sometimes I'll say, so take advantage of me today and if there's anything else you want, do it right now because I won't do this ever again. And then I add on a sell. Now, what about retention of those clients? Do you find they come back as often, less often, more the, often? Um, usually those are 
cells that I know are probably once and last time cells. Mm-hmm. You know, usually I've already felt it out. Like I know that they're going to buy a painting somewhere and that's what they're going to pay for it, whether it's me or the guy down the street. So either I make it happen or they're going to buy it somewhere else and then they're done. You know, it's like they're just looking for one painting for uh, their third house. Mm. They don't need anything else. And that's what they want to spend. So I don't look at it as they're going to buy 10 more paintings and they're going to always want a discount. I, I try to find out where it's going, how many houses they have, where it's getting shipped. You know, I do a lot of sort of privatized stuff to find out. What if you have an instinct that this is a person that could be a client for life, like many of your clients? Do you never, do you not do that check? No, usually I tell them, I mean, you can use all these first-time buyers, you know, terms and whatnot. It's like, hey, you know, I give every single, for example, I go go to 25% off for every resident around the gallery. Mm -hmm. So I tell people, if you're in the 92101 zip code, automatically you get 25% off any purchase. You know, and they're like, wow, so does that devalue all the artists? No, because how many of those people have actually come in here and have said, according to you, we get 25% off, you know, unless they bring it up, I don't bring it up. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So unless they've heard of it, like I said, through referrals. Yeah, it's only word know, of mouth. Yeah. You're not putting a big banner not, in front exactly. of your gallery. Yeah, Exactly, because somebody from another zip code can easily say, well, why not me if you're giving it to them? You know, it's, it's a silly game. But... um. But whenever I do, um, but tell me about the advantages of this. Is that what is it just well, good for motivating for someone to, to come in? Some, it's to get them out of their off. It's it's easy delivery. I literally have to walk across the street. Uh, they're always walking their dogs around here, so for the chances of them walking back in here are better. Uh, whenever they have people from out of town, they'll call me and bring them in here because they want to flaunt of where they bought the art from. Uh-huh. Uh So it's it's a good relationship that'll go beyond that discount. You're, they're sort of working for you at that point. Is that for life? Like As long as they live across the street, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and those are the ones that call me and say, we stopped by, but you were closed. And, you know, and then mm-hmm. sometimes I'll come in even just to say hi to them. You know, hey, I'm going to come in, come in for a glass of wine or whatever. And that, it used to be like that when I first moved to La Jolla in 2001, where I was really making friends with all the neighborhoods, with all the neighbors. And then the market just started going south. And here, you know, all these condos are so expensive that that they're sort of stable. Chris, right, so let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. You've gone through these big revelations. You become an art dealer. You're working for Wentworth. You go and explode and open up all these different versions of retail, you know, more than most people do in one career as owning galleries. You've now pared it down to the small, you know, 750-square-foot, you know, space you're working just neighborhood word of mouth. Is that it? Is that how you're going to roll through the rest of the career? Or is there another version of you as an art dealer that's ahead? I think that uh, this is going to be like this for a while. Uh, I want to start a family. So mm-hmm. that's sort of what I'm trying to, to prepare for. So you must be looking for a real stable version of whatever it is yeah. you do. Yeah, and I think that, and I'm actually working harder <laughs> now than I did because I don't have a staff. Yeah, but I think that once, once, you know, now that I have this house that I'm living in, once that gets settled and I'm unpacked, then I'll feel more comfortable hiring somebody. But right now, there's just paperwork everywhere that I don't trust anybody to come in to organize it for me. It's that organized mess, mess philosophy that I know where everything is, even though it's a disaster. <laughs> Do not organize for me because I'll lose things. 
And uh, but I think for the time being, um, I have a good relationship with the landlord in this space. He's actually a client. Uh huh. And when I was downsizing, he offered it to me, and I have a really good deal with him. And he's just really laid back, and and it's the first time that I've had a landlord that's willing to take part art and part cash as former rent. <laughs> wow, that's huge. Yeah. That's another one I've never been able to pull huge, off. Yeah. Huge. You know. So well, this is a really nice building. I yeah. mean, you're not behind someone's garage no. here. I yeah. mean, you're It's right in the middle. This so. is rather prestigious looking. It is. It is. So it's sort of that so I I've, I've been very blessed, you know, that those people that were clients are now sort of in a way helped me out. My the 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 doctor that's doing the surrogacy for me is a client of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I got a deal on <laughs> on eggs. <laughs> you know what I mean? For art. <laughs> so, I'm getting life. So that future I'm child. I'm life for a painting. <laughs> so a future child at some point when they go, Daddy, wh- where do I come from? You know, well, you, I pretty much traded art for you. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> You were a Moreau and a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's funny. Well, I kind of meant it on a on a personal level, though. I mean, is that it? Are you cool? Are you getting as much out of being an art dealer as you yeah, want? I mean, or is there something you want to... Every year I say I'm done with the art fairs. Every year I say that, and every year I do one. And, uh, Why I, do you I think th- that is? Because uh, it's fun. Okay. It's fun. I have fun in them. And it's, it's a fun because you meet a lot of new I people? I have fun, or? but I do something that a lot of people don't do. What's that? Is uh, I shop for clients at the art fairs. So I go to the art fairs and I go around, take pictures of pieces that I think some of my clients want, send them the text them the pictures, and broker the deal with the artist or the gallery to the client. I've sold more art out of other people's booths than in my own booth at the art fairs. And that's happened continuously. Every time I go to an art yeah, fair. Yeah, but you don't need to have your own booth to do that. Yeah, I, I know. Mean, you can just go to the art fair. Yeah, but when you're there, you don't have to say, I'm a dealer. You just say, that's my booth. Uh-huh. And then, so like, immediately you have leg- legitimacy. Yeah. So then you're like, look, I have a booth here as well, and I have a client. I don't represent you. I don't want to represent you. But I'd rather the client have this piece than me sell them something out of my gallery because your piece is a better match. So it's and so I usually do that on second and third day. So why would you not want to go back to the art fairs? It sounds like that's no, a great I, well, system, that's and you're that's loving what it. Always gets, well, because it's it is a lot of work, you know. Uh-huh. It is setting up and whatnot, and then you know, so it's it's you just have to sort of switch hats, you know. You don't want to not be in your booth because that one client might pass by and you're not there. You're out doing other stuff, you know. It's that worry that's going to always be there. Yeah, I think you've modeled one important lesson in two different ways too because I've known dealers to shut down their gallery and they leave the website up and they you know and they say well I'm still in business and I'm still taking calls and I still have my client list and you watch it just evaporate yeah. in a second because once the brick and mortar is gone mm-hmm. you suddenly yeah. start looking like just a guy with a cell phone number yeah and even when you have a gallery like this one where they're, you know, it's not, it doesn't have regular business hours, it's a place. Yeah. There's a place to find you eventually. Right, right. And I kind of, and you just modeled it with the fairs, and I never thought of fairs in that way before. Yeah. Of Well, there's some people that don't have a, a bit. There's some people that don't have brick and mortars that do the art fairs that are like, uh, what do you call them? It's a group of, pe- group of artists. 
Oh, collective. Collective, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, don't actually have brick and mortars. And yeah, but even those don't come across the same way. They don't, they don't. When you go into, I've, I've had that. I've gone into booths at art fairs mm-hmm. and have them tell me that it's a collective, and I just yeah. kind of feel like, well, it's not the same. this isn't a place, it's an idea. You know, fortunately, I've done so many things that there's a good search engine out there just <laughs> throw my face out. <laughs> yeah, actually, I pulled up an article about uh, a couple shows of yours while I was waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, thank you, Alex. Of course. Really appreciate it. Always. So as I write, did he sum it up in that one statement when he was answering to me when I asked if all of these things were a part to his philosophy of what it is to be a good art dealer? And he says it's about what it is to be a good human being or something along those lines. I think that just summed it up. I want to I want to thank Alex. That was a great conversation with a very impressive art dealer. Thank you very much for your time, Alex, and thank you even more for all that you shared. And since I'm thanking folks, I want to thank those of you who have helped support the podcast in all the different ways, reviews and subscribing and passing the word along. And I want to give you a great example of one person who uh, reached out to us in a way that we haven't normally had people reach out to us. It was a comment on the show's Instagram page, and it came from what I understand to be some folks at a new gallery in England, and it's called Brickwork Gallery. Uh, new to me, but really neat stuff when I check them out on the website. And here's what they wrote. Been listening to the show religiously. Love it. Helping us so much as a startup. So, so much! Exclamation mark. Thank you. I wish I knew some of the names of the folks over at the Brickwork Gallery so I can call them out individually, but I only assume that you're listening now, and I wanted to thank you for those kind words. They put a little bit of gas in my tank and helped me keep going just a little bit longer in doing this show. So thank you very much for that. In the meanwhile, until we get together again here at the old art dealer bar, may the coconuts fall to your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find out more about The Art Dealer Show at our website at artdealer.show. You can also see us at all the cool social media sites under the handle, yeah, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show. <laughs>